Well, we're turning in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, returning to our wee series, The Pursuit of Joy, and we're returning to the chapter 2 of Philippians, and we're going to read from the verse 12. Of course, last week we were looking at the Christian life, and we were thinking about the, how Christ work within us, and how we work out that Christian faith. It was the Christian work I really we thought about last week and our human responsibility to live for the Lord. And of course we aren't our own and do on our own in doing this. We have the divine resources from God who worketh in each of us uh, to help us to live for Him. And the portion we're looking at really this afternoon will be from verses 14 to 18. And it teaches us how to live in a crooked and perverse nation. Or as we're entitling our study, how to live in a crooked and perverse generation. Those words just lifted directly from our text uh, today. But we're going to read these verses together. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from the verse 12, and we'll read through to the verse 18. And of course, this is Paul writing. And he writes, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, and not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do um, of his both to will and to do of his good pleasure, do all things without murmurings and disputings, uh, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And I trust the Lord will bless the reading of this word to each of our hearts. And I think it's important to set out this afternoon that Paul here in verse 15, he writes about living. In the, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And we need to explore before we go anywhere with this. But what does that actually mean? And do we in the UK and Ireland, do, do we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation? What do we know about this generation that we live in? Well, I don't really need to rehearse to you what's going on in the world. Uh, you know it's inescapable. You don't need information about the disappointments in our culture uh, and the disappointments in our world. You, you don't need to hear that uh, everything is upside down as it was in Isaiah chapter 5. Better is being swapped with sweet, good is being swapped with bad. Uh, and we're living in an inverted and upside down world. And before we note five ways that we can be living with the mind of Christ in a wicked society, I want to carefully explore this term, wicked and perverse nation. I believe that our nation is under judgment. I believe that our nation is under God's wrath. Well, I hear you say, how do you know this? Can you be sure? And the answer is that yes, you can know, and you can be certain, and I'll show you how. Uh, keep your finger in Philippians, and turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1 and the verse 18. Paul writes here, 
This is what he said. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Any nation, any association of human beings that, con that constitutes a culture, if they turn away from the truth, that is God's word, in unrighteousness, according to this verse, they will receive the wrath of God. I think it's important for us to understand this. So we'll take our time here. The wrath of God can come in many different forms. That there, there's the eternal wrath. Uh, that's hell. There's the eschatological wrath. That's to do with the future. Uh, that's the expressions of wrath that you read about in the book of Revelation. All the judgments that will fall on the earth during the great tribulation. That's eschatological wrath. And our Lord talked about that in the sermon in the second coming in Matthew 24 and 25. So there's eternal wrath, there's eschatological wrath, and then there's what some theologians call a cataclysmic wrath. That's just to do with natural disasters, massive earthquakes, massive floods. The most massive example, the best example being the Genesis flood, where God literally uh, drowned the entire human race with the exception of one family. There's what some call sowing and reaping wrath. Whatever you sow, you reap. There's consequences to the sinful behavior. There's consequences to sinful behavior and sometimes even built in to the sinful behavior. There are many aspects of the wrath of God. It works inexplicably, it works inevitably, and it works justly. But there's another kind of wrath and that's what we're talking about in Romans 1. And it's called the wrath of abandonment. In Acts 14, the Bible says that God allowed all the nations to go their own way. If you take a moment and look at the history of the world, nation after nation have gone their own way and consequently experienced the wrath of divine abandonment. And that's what's in view in Romans 1.18. Look at it again. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19. Because that which we which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God, by his creation, has put himself on display to the degree that his eternal power and divine nature can be very clearly seen in creation. And anyone who rejects him, they are without excuse. It's made very clear in these verses, and men do reject him, and nations do reject him, and cultures do reject our God. That's the cycle of human history. And in verse 21 of Romans 1, this is what we read. We read, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, 
Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What are they saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying the world and the culture, they take Almighty God and they replace him with their own version of their own deities that they make up and they turn to all kinds of idols and they worship themselves and they worship all these things. And Paul is saying to, to, to the people in Rome, he's saying as he writes to the church in Rome, he's saying these people have turned away. And God's wrath of abandonment will turn on them. In chapter 2 of Romans it says the law of God is written in the heart. These people are a nation that we live in, they're without excuse. And those who reject God, well God has revealed himself to them. They know that there must be a God, for God has written it upon their hearts. But they don't honor Him, and they don't give thanks. And they become empty in their understanding, and their foolish hearts are darkened, and they profess to be wise. How many people do you see sitting in Parliament and they profess to be wise? And they're actually fools, and they exchange the incorruptible God for some other deity of their own making. Verse 24 of Romans 1 is 8, it says, Wherefore, God also gave men up. Abandonment. Other versions say, God gave them over. God gave them up. Today we live in times when a Christian lady can't stand outside an abortion clinic to silently pray that the Lord would move against the slaughtering of the unborn child. Isabel Vulcan Spruce, remember the name, was arrested in recent weeks for silently praying outside an abortion clinic, praying that the Lord would move. We live in these times. When God's ordained way of marriage has been grossly perverted, by this world, by this nation. When gender is played around with in the medical world. When medical care is counted as helping these people to change their gender. When sodomy is right and sodomy is celebrated in our capital city. <coughs> and throughout history, people's minds have been so blinded to God's perfect plan. And nations and cultures and generations, they've just been abandoned by God. And surely we can see that the wrath of God's abandonment has fell upon our land. It feels like the days of the judges. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And God doesn't interrupt the course of our nation's thinking. As his divine judgment is that he abandons them because of their willing rebellion against him. And they head down this path of sexual revolution, homosexual revolution, to the issues of transgenderism, that all the things that we're dealing with today, abortion, all the topics of the day, and our nation have grossly and gone far, far away from God, and God has abandoned them. Biblically speaking, that's the world that we're living in. 
And suddenly, a rational thought, quite frankly, ridiculous thought, and yet so now so strongly built into our culture that society and its leaders are making laws to protect these people. And therefore, God has given us this is judgment. And I believe it's behind this line of thinking as we turn back to the evidence that Paul speaks to the Christians in Philippi and says, Dear Christian, you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. That's what he means. And this is important because we have to understand that that is what we are living today. A world of judgment. A nation under judgment. But as we live in this society that we have just set out and described, let me tell you something, dear child of God. God has not abandoned his people. He may have abandoned our nation, but he has not abandoned his people. Praise God. We are his. And we are his own possession. Now this is the nation that we live in and the title of our whole series is The Pursuit of Joy. And I haven't really given you much of the joy full of it as we started here. But Paul is now going to tell us how we can still find this joy as the Church of Christ. And he's going to give us some structure, instruction on our behaviour and how we can find this joy in these verses. Their obedience needs to be worked out in the most practical way in this crooked and perverse nation. And Paul says in verse 14, he speaks in verbs, and we're going to pick out five words, and uh, we're going to use these verbs. The first verb is do, verse 14, do. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Doing all things Joyfully. Do all things without murmurings or disputing. Paul says, do everything without complaining. We've mentioned in recent weeks that we live in a day where the, uh, the grass is always greener culture. Uh, you, you're never satisfied with what you've got. Um, we live in a day of instant gratification. TV ads are aimed towards bettering the person coming by this because this is what you should be or, or this is what you should have uh, and we live in this false assumption and formula and equation that if, if I had that or if I looked like that or if, 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 if I, I'd be like that or if, if these things that I see in the ads well I would be happy if I got what that I see in these ads and um, when we get those things, generally we're not happy and we want more and we become discontent. And that's because we want more. And then discontentment, well, what does it breed? It breeds impatience. And you would know that impatience is the defining characteristic of our day. And you can see this discontentment and impatience creeping its way into the church of Christ. Many church fellowships today, there is this now consumer culture that's become common. And people start to complain that the church down the road is doing this and that. And this church needs to go with the times. They need to think about the young people. They need to think about this. And they need to think about what you need to change to get people in. And that's why today, more than ever, you see churches splitting in our land. More than we've ever known. 
believers fighting and bickering with one another. And it usually comes from the seat of complaining and grumbling within the assembly. Can I ask you something? Are you a complainer? Do you mumble? Do you complain? Do you murmur? Do you dispute? Do you complain about this church fellowship to your brothers and sisters? To your family at the table? Do you, do, do you complain and murmur with the other members in the church? Do you know someone like that? Is it you? The other word in this verse, it says, it says we're to be without murmuring and disputing, arguing with others, stirring up doubt and suspicions. Do you remember the children of Israel almost drove Moses to distraction with their murmuring in the wilderness? They did nothing but criticize and complain. They murmured against the food that God gave them. Numbers 11 verse 4. They murmured against the leadership God gave them. Numbers 12. They murmured against the land God promised them. Numbers 13. Against the way that God led them. Numbers 11. They were just a multitude of murmurers and complainers. And they caused disputes constantly among the children of Israel. I wonder, do you know that kind? Those who grumble and complain. Rather, dear believer, Paul says we are to be doing things joyfully. I wonder, are we doing things joyfully? It's a direct application of what Sharon has already said to the boys and girls and to each of us. We ought to be doing things without murmuring and complaining and causing disputes, but rather be serving the Lord with joy. Do. The second word that we see is with the be, becoming be. Verse 15 says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. That ye may be harmless and, or blameless and harmless. So doing all things without murmurings or disputings, and that infers that we're doing things joyfully, and that leads to becoming blameless and harmless. Paul uses two interesting words in this verse. The word blameless means without reproach. And the same word is used to describe Zechariah and Elizabeth who were chosen by God in their advancing years to be the parents of John the Baptist. Blameless. I wonder can that, that term be used and stamped by your life in the way you live? Blameless. And also the word harmless it speaks about something that's pure. The word means unmixed. It was used to speak of an apple without alloy. It was used to speak of wine without water. It speaks of the real thing. It speaks of something which is genuine. It's the authentic Christian. That's what it's talking about. Robert Ingersoll, an infidel notorious for his attacks in the Bible, had a godly aunt. And he once sent a copy of one of his books written against the Bible to his aunt. And then the flyleaf he wrote these words. If all Christians had lived like my aunt Sarah, perhaps this book would never have been written. Blameless and harmless. In a world that's totally perverted, are you living a life of simple goodness for the Lord? 
Are you influencing the world and those around you for good? Or is the world influencing you? You know, this, these words blameless and hard are harmless. We're not talking about holy perfection here. We're not. We won't be perfect until we have our glorified body in eternity. But Paul is teaching that we shouldn't be living in such a way that people can constantly point out our faults and constantly point out a gap that exists between our mouths and our actions. Becoming the kind of instruments that God is happy to use. That's what Paul's talking about. You know, he wrote to Timothy and he said, he said about a, a house that has all these kinds of vessels and some are fit and noble for use and some aren't good for use. And he says, if a man cleanses himself from all these things, from the sin, and then, then he will be the kind of instrument or vessel that God is happy to pick up and use. That's what Paul's talking about here, that we would be clean vessels that the Lord could use. And all of this, you'll know, takes place in our lives in a crooked and perverse nation, doing all things joyfully, becoming blameless and harmless. But then Paul goes on and he produces another verb and it's the word shine at the end of verse 15. Shining as lights. Read verse 15, it says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. What is God's objective for us as we live in the society that we've described? Well, Paul says we're to shine. We're living in a dark world. And all around us are people whose lives are bent and warped by sin. And God has sent us in this, into this dark world to shine his light. One night off the Florida coastline, a terrible gale was blowing. And the wind was so strong that it drove in the glass of one of the sides of a lantern in the lighthouse that was set to guard part of the rocky shore. And the keeper of the lighthouse had no other glass to cover the gap and to shield the lamp, and so, doing his best, he put up a sheet of tin. And in the storm that evening, a ship was being tossed to and fro, uh, trying to find a harbour, and it couldn't find the light that he knew should be there. And the captain of the ship, he got confused, and he ran his vessel onto the rocks where the ship and all the crew were lost. Why? Because the lighthouse had been darkened just in one part. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 36, the Lord Jesus says, Having no part dark. The damage of that shipwreck just because one part of that light had gone dark. And the shipwreck that you and I could cause to another life by some wretched inconsistency, or some slack behaviour, or some part dark obscuring the light. Oh, that we wouldn't be those who bring loss to others. Is there a dark part in your home where you live? Do you need to shine the light again? Is there a dark part in the office, the factory, the workplace? Do you need to shine the light again? The light of the glorious gospel of Christ needs to shine. And it is Christ that lives in you. And I trust that it wouldn't be able to be said of you that there is a part that is dark. 
the picture that Paul actually uses here as he speaks about the lights in the world. He's speaking of stars which shine in the universe. I think probably what is in mind there is that the fact that stars were used as navigation aids in those days. And people would walk outside and they would look up. By the means of stars they would determine their course. We're to be like that as Christians. He says to the Philippians. He says, my anticipation of you is that in the darkness of the world in which you live, that you'll become as navigational aids for the world that, that points and leads and navigates people to Christ. What a tragedy when the church provides only crookedness and faultiness and impurity and darkness and obscurity and God has redeemed us with an outstretched hand in order that we might be doing and becoming and shining. We must keep moving. Verse 16, holding, holding, doing, becoming, shining, holding. Verse 16 says, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Holding forth the word of life. You see, we're not only to be shining witnesses by our walk, but we have to be holding forth the word by our talk. Do you see the difference? Our walk, how we live, but also what we say comes into it now. Holding forth the word of life. It means to labour, this word holding, it means to labour to the point of exhaustion. Now if this message, the gospel, is life-giving, if this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your life around, is it not worth giving your whole life for? You see, from the moment Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he renounced all for Christ. He was ready to go anywhere, to do anything, to pay any price. If it meant the honour of Christ's name and the extension of Christ's kingdom. And Paul's motto was simply this, all for Christ and Christ for all. I wonder is that how you serve the Lord? Are you all for Christ and Christ for all? Do you proclaim him? Do you love him as your Lord and Saviour? Can you not help but talk about him? So often we simply give the Lord our leftovers, the leftovers of our time, the leftovers of our energies, the leftovers of our talents, the leftovers of our money, after we've spent most of these things on ourselves, but not Paul, for he had a grasp of God's goal for him. And Paul says, you have to hold forth the word of life, all for Jesus. He says in verse 17, Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. What's he saying? Well, in Old Testament times, when a person brought an animal to sacrifice to God, he also brought wine, and he poured it out as an accompanying offering. And Paul saw his converts at Philippi as consecrated believers who presented themselves to God as a living sacrifice, yes. But Paul literally is saying here that he was willing to give his life lay his life on the altar for the Lord, as of where his blood would flow as that wine offering. Paul realized that he was on death row as he wrote this letter in joy. But there was the possibility that he would never set his foot outside of prison again. And Paul was saying, 
If I have to die for this message, so be it. It's my life offering. I've held forth the word of life, and if it means that I'm martyred for it, so be it. May the blood I shed be for God's glory. Here was a man who had his eye on the return of Christ. For he said, he speaks of the day of Christ. In these verses, in verse 16, he said that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. And he thought about the rewards of serving the Lord at the Venusy. I wonder, is your eye in that day? For dear brother, dear sister, you and I as the children of God will stand at the Bema one day. And we will give account of how we live for the Lord. I wonder will you be found with regret as you stand before the Lord, doing, becoming, shining, holding, finally rejoicing. Rejoicing in a race well run. Paul lived his life in such a way that when his race was run, he wouldn't look back in vain. And Paul was saying to the believers, I've laboured among you. He says to them, and at the end of verse 16, he says, that I have rejoiced in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. He's telling the believers in front of him, those who he has spent time with in Philippi, he says, you hold forth the word of life. I'm going to go now. The Lord's going to take me home, but you continue to hold forth the word of life so that my witness in Philippi wasn't in vain. So that maybe when Paul gets to that being a seat, when he hears that name called out in the church, that is part of the church of Philippi, that he'll get that double blessing. As Paul had that influence in that particular church, and he's saying that I will rejoice in my race well run, but also that I'll rejoice that you ran your race well too. Mr. Vaughan, who had the privilege of teaching young pastors and preachers, used to say to them in his last lecture, he said, Gentlemen, whatever else you are and do, make sure that you subordinate your life and ministry. When you get up yonder, there shall be, be there shall be many a one who shall take you by the hand and lead you to the throne and say, Lord, in thy power, this man brought me here. How are we to live in a crooked and perverse generation, doing all things joyfully, becoming blameless and harmless, shining as lights, holding forth the word of life? Rejoicing in a race well run. The hymn writer says, by and by, when I look at his face, I wish I had given him more. More, so much more. More of my life than I ever gave before. By and by, when I look at his face, I wish I had given him more.